From 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn about Black Cross nurses and a new exhibit about their work. We'll listen back to a conversation with Bishop Cedric Daniels, a religious leader in the Milwaukee community who passed away recently. When people understand their past and they understand their journey, it aids them in understanding their future. It avoids repeating uh, mistakes of yesteryear. We'll learn about research that's working to preserve the state's bat population. We're very happy that mm-hmm. we still have a lot of bats to work with here in Wisconsin, and that is not something that other states are saying. Plus, hear music from Milwaukee's own Abby Jean in the latest episode of Live at Lake Effect. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. In the 1920s, amidst an international pandemic, rising rates of tuberculosis and smallpox, and racial disparities in health outcomes, the Black Cross nurses were founded. The Black Cross nurses trained Black people to become traveling nurses that met the needs of Black residents across the Western Hemisphere that were ignored by establishment public health institutions. Do for Self, the story of Milwaukee's Black Cross nurses is a new exhibit at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society, and it chronicles the foundation of the Black Cross nurses here in Milwaukee. Lake Effect Sam Woods visited the exhibit to learn about the nurses from museum staff, as well as meet with today's health workers who see themselves in the exhibit. Vanessa Johnson was born two months early, at just over two pounds. Her mother was visiting Milwaukee during the 4th of July, when she went into labor, while everyone around her dismissed her concerns. And so, as you can suspect, she's coming here to just enjoy the holiday, and she went into labor. And no one believed her. They didn't think she was um, in labor. They told my father that he can go back to Indiana because my mother's just constipated. Mm -hmm. And so she was left to be alone in a hospital room laboring for hours at a time. And it wasn't until about eight hours or so later that the doctor finally came in the room to check on her and they could see me, I was coming out. And so it was, they were frantic and like, oh my goodness, and um, I was born. Today, Vanessa is a reproductive health lactation nurse, doula birth worker, and yoga instructor with an emphasis on prenatal and postpartum health. She says that she chose this work due to her birth story and how her mother was largely left alone and ignored while Vanessa was born. And so in, a, in an unfamiliar place, ill-prepared, not being listened to, and as a black woman, you know, birthing in the 70s, the idea of not being listened to, your voice not being heard, is still continuing to this day. And so I really felt like Somehow, some way, if I could provide a sense of peace in that moment for other families, then like job well done. But when I met Vanessa, she was fighting back tears of joy. As we were both learning about Milwaukee's long history of black health care workers volunteering to provide medical care for black residents and combat racial disparities in health outcomes over 100 years ago. We were at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society Museum's new exhibit, Do for Self, the story of Milwaukee's Black Cross nurses. The exhibit chronicles the foundation and story of the Milwaukee chapter of the Black Cross nurses. 
which was a group of black nurses dedicated to providing public health services to black people, with chapters in Milwaukee, as well as places as far away as Nova Scotia and Panama. But before we get into the Milwaukee chapter of the Black Cross Nurses and Vanessa's connection to them, we need to establish some context, starting a little over a hundred years ago with Marcus Garvey and the UNIA. Fellow citizens of Africa, I greet you in the name of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World. You may ask, what organization is that? It is for me to inform you that the Universal Negro Improvement Association is an organization that seeks to unite into one solid body the 400 million Negroes of the world. That's Marcus Garvey, speaking in 1921 about the goals of a new organization he had founded, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, or UNIA. Starting in Garvey's home country of Jamaica, the long-term goals of the UNIA centered on political and economic autonomy for the black diaspora and encouraged a self-reliant black nationalism. This is where the exhibit's Do For Self title comes from. Now, at the same time that the UNIA was getting going and Marcus Garvey was recording this speech in the early 1920s, the need for adequate public health services was impossible to ignore. Every year in America, there are more than 100,000 new cases of tuberculosis. Of all infectious diseases, tuberculosis is still the greatest killer. Tuberculosis, measles, and smallpox remain prevalent, and the flu pandemic of 1918 caught the world by surprise in a manner similar to COVID-19, leading to thousands of people dying and the widespread use of masks and social distancing. Public health institutions like the American Red Cross were in place to aid in these emergencies. But black people did not receive the same level of care as white people from these types of establishment institutions. So, in 1920, Henrietta Vinton Davis, a UNIA member and follower of Marcus Garvey, founded the first chapter of the Black Cross Nurses in Philadelphia. Soon, Black Cross Nurse chapters popped up in conjunction with the UNIA all over North and Central America and the Caribbean. As Claiborne Benson, historian and executive director of the Wisconsin Black Historical Society, explains, the Black Cross nurses took Garvey's do-for-self idea and applied it to public health. They performed regular home and hospital visits, administered needed medicine, and cared for pregnant women and new mothers who were ignored by establishment health institutions. The Black Cross nurses served that purpose by going to their homes, by uh, treating them in their beds, and uh, and and caring for the issues that existed inside their house that makes their wellness becoming reality through clean house and through dishwashers and children. And, but they did even more than that. Many of them delivered babies and they, uh, they brought medicines from the drugstore to solve people's problems. They did all sorts of things because they actually cared about the people themselves. They saw it as of being part of the Marcus Garvey movement, number one, and number two, helping to solve the problems of our people, and that being health issues, tuberculosis, when others did not want to or were reluctant to uh, treat our people. Milwaukee would get its chapter of the Black Cross Nurses in 1921, when Hattie Fountain, a member of Milwaukee's UNIA chapter, started organizing volunteers to start a chapter here. Not only did Hattie start the chapter, but she kept detailed notes of the nurses' activities here in Milwaukee, which provide the basis for the exhibit on now at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society. In her diary, Hattie describes making house calls, 
seeing people in her home, and traveling to hospitals to visit people sick with various ailments. She also documents going to the train station to give smallpox inoculations, how the Black Cross nurses perform services similar to birth doulas, who would guide people through caring for themselves during pregnancy, as well as organize mutual aid for new mothers. The diary also described day-to-day life working for the UNIA, from cataloging membership certificates and meeting notes to stories of police raids in her home. As Wisconsin Black Historical Society Program Director Jamila Benson explains, this type of day-to-day documentation of Black Cross nurse activities in the 1920s is rare anywhere, despite the organization having chapters in dozens of countries. It's really exciting. There are historians who are going to find out that this is actually written and want to know more about it. I want to read what she wrote. Um, because in my, in my studies and in my research about Black Cross nurses, there's very little. Um, there's information on um, Lady Davis, who started the Black Cross nurses, but to talk about an individual nurse and her day-to-day activity is really rare. The Black Cross nurses continued this work in Milwaukee until the early 1950s, when Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy started fueling anti-communist suspicions nationwide. Here he is making a speech in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, using, quote, lumberjack tactics to hack away at alleged communist activity. As long as I am in the Senate, this task is not going to become a dainty task. If anyone wants to come in and remove them in some dainty fashion, they're welcome to it. But in the absence of that, if lumberjack tactics are the only kind of tactics that crowd understands and take my word for it, those are the kind of tactics we're going to use on them, as long as there is one there endangering the lives of 150 million American people. Now, McCarthy tended to focus his tirades in the early 1950s on supposed communist infiltration of U.S. government agencies and the military, not in the UNIA or Black Cross nurses specifically. However, over the years, his continued rhetoric fueled suspicion of these secret communist agents lurking everywhere. And Claiborne said that this caused the Black Cross nurses to fade away in Milwaukee because they feared becoming political prisoners. There were Black Cross nurses all the way through the 1950s. Um, And it's the McCarthy air that brings the fear in people and they stop attending meetings. I can't tell you that they were Black Cross nurses, uh, during that period of time, but they were members of the Marcus Garvey movement and they stayed true to Marcus Garvey. How could you not when you get slogans like, up you mighty race, be strong, take care of yourself, do for self. These are words of significance to African Americans and they respected and appreciated them, but they did not want to go to jail. Because the uh, the FBI and other government agencies would press people with, what are you doing? What are you guys saying in this meeting? That kind of thing. And that, and that's the one thing that stopped the movement. Now, that's in the early 1950s, early, early 1950s. But throughout the 30s and the 40s, uh, the Marcus Garvey movement is still alive. But if you ask Vanessa Johnson, who we met at the beginning of the segment, about the impact of the Black Cross nurses, she'd say their lessons and their experience live on. Beginning from her birth, where her mother did not receive adequate health care, to her work now as a nurse and doula, Johnson saw herself in the exhibit. She saw herself in both the obstacles that she and the Black Cross nurses faced, and in the shared resolution to improve Black health outcomes. Across the health sector, you know, the disparities are through the roof. And so, 
you know, it's important to to know the history, to know about all of the the pioneers who came before us, so that we can continue to do this work because it is it is um, it can it can weigh heavy on your heart, your spirit, on your mental health. Um, but to know that we are again from the work that was done, that we have made strides, that we have. Uh, made advances, but to know that there's still mo- so much more to do, we have to we have to keep pushing and we have to keep fighting. And so that 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 really drives me. Where um, I think there's a quote that says, you know, like we are our ancestors' wildest dreams, right? And so we can't give up. We have to keep going. Do for self. The story of Milwaukee's Black Cross nurses is now on display at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society. For Lake Effect, I'm Sam Woods. That was the Wisconsin Black Historical Society's Claiborne and Jamila Benson, as well as Vanessa Johnson, registered nurse and doula through her business, A Miracle Happened. Do for Self, the story of Milwaukee's Black Cross Nurses is a new exhibit at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society. A Milwaukee religious leader has passed away. Bishop Cedric Daniels was a prominent figure and pastor at Church of God in Christ. Milwaukee County Executive David Crowley described him as a pillar in the community and says his impact will continue to be felt for generations to come. WUWM race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell spoke to Bishop Daniels in 2021 when his church led an initiative to open an art center dedicated to the curation and preservation of African Americans' contributions to the arts. I think it's important to Milwaukee and community and a global perspective. When people understand their past and they understand their journey, it aids them in understanding their future. It avoids repeating uh, mistakes of yesteryear. It also exposes successful strategies that have been successful in a culture. When you look at other groups and other cultures, what you find is a historical archive of their journey I remember when uh, I had traveled to Israel on one of my occasions and had gone to the Holocaust Museum. There, what was very visible and clear was their journeys. It included wonderfully depicted accounts uh, that were pictorial as well as written of their journey. Even uh, the dots and the ceiling uh, symbolized the number of individuals whose lives had been lost in Holocaust. That was an impressive uh, journey for me over 30 years ago. And I, as I began to think of that as I traveled the world, I began to realize that many people in our community, many young people and families don't really understand, therefore cannot appreciate the sacrifices, the culture of a people that was once enslaved as other cultures and have ascended to new horizons. So it's important for our uh, young people in Milwaukee because we're facing disconnection as many urban communities are, and it allows us to give an appreciation so that we can have prototypes and patterns to successfully build a brighter tomorrow and a better today. And, you know, this location is also in part of the community where I've seen so many folks trying to give back and trying to build up their communities and just offer the residents something to be proud of in their community. Why was this location on Hampton chosen? Well, obviously, and you're absolutely correct, there is a resurgence to revitalize and to bring 
adaptive reuse to structures that may have previously been industrial and used for other purposes and make them practical. This is a pattern that occurs throughout the city. I remember my journey for over 10 years as a commissioner on the city plan commission where I saw various aspects of Milwaukee, the third ward and others being revitalized. It's just because something may have been blight and have had certain challenges does not mean that it doesn't give opportunity for an oasis of hope. In addition to that, the Holy Redeemer campus, the footprint of our campus, nearly 20 of the 40 acres is on the blueprint on Hampton Avenue. So that Hampton corridor becomes critical for us because it gives connectivity to our schools, to our credit union, to our youth service, our senior housing, and a plethora of 40 programs that we offer here at Holy Redeemer. So at this grand opening, uh, what can people expect? Well, what you can expect, first of all, is to take a journey. And that journey will take you back to uh, a land where many individuals and most of the individuals in our community have never journeyed, and that's Africa. And there you can see the artifacts, you can see various videos, displays, and even hear the voices of uh, Africans past and present not only that, you'll also be able to see and enjoy uh, the various artistic presentations from African-American artists from around the nation. Uh, you'll also be able to see and hear uh, some of the various genres of music that have been uh, contributed and actually founded in the Americas by uh, African traditions and African vocalists and various uh, individuals that have created uh, as authors that have shared their musical skills. Uh, in addition to that, there is a STEAM uh, area, which is science, technology, engineering, arts, and music, a historic journey of our past and present, uh, displays of various uh, artifacts that individuals have shared of their personal journey, their personal story, the space that is designated as an eatery, that eatery is being called, it is what it is, which is community dining, southern cuisine, and healthy nutritional meals. So there's a series of things along with other kinds of the history makers probably being one of the premier pieces, which is America's largest uh, electronic archival repository uh, that will be shared, a satellite uh, site that is shared at IPAMA that reveals in a very positive way the discoveries and accomplishments of noted African-Americans in at least 10 different spaces with their narratives, their information, and also their journey. Mm. I like the sound of that, especially the it is what it is. That That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, what has been the most exciting for, for you about IPAMA's journey to this grand opening? Sure. Well, quite simply, you know, it has a deep revelation as I began to eagerly consider many of the things that we embrace as a community and change, uh, become change agents and bring uh, brilliance and smiles and brightness to our people. It allows us to stand tall and to uh, share the chances that individuals have taken and to give gratitude and appreciation and thanks for the accomplishments that people have made. So what makes it so wonderful is it allows us every day in every way to see our present and move to our future. 
It allows us to bring direction. It allows us to bring appropriate language uh, that shares in a very real way the participation and the positive attitudes that individuals have attentively shared uh, in bringing timely uh, advancement to our people. As we begin to consider those things, we can see various uh, artifacts that include the journey of women, uh, as women have contributed in such a significant way to stabilizing community, and the strength of the African-American, the black male, and then children that gives hope where they can stack in a very real way their future. Those are things that are critical as we sit and we embrace and commune as a community these things. And so I guess my final question would be, what do you think just the existence of this institute, the long-lasting impact it will have in Milwaukee? Sure. Sure. We are legacy leaders. In other words, we leave a legacy. And what we must be able to do is we must transform community by ascending courageously to new horizons. We're able to do that by grasping and embracing where we are. We've had a lot of disconnect uh, in families because of pandemic, because of uh, kinds of issues, philosophies, and thinkings that people have. But what it does is in a positive way, it presents uh, to our community and other cultures and communities an appreciation uh, for the contributions of the people. So we leave with hope. And I suppose that would be the key word is that it brings hope. It brings hope to communities. It brings hope to you. It brings hope to individuals. It allows individuals to dream and to soar and to be eagle and to find that phoenix, that place, that faith that makes a difference in our culture and in our world. Bishop Cedric Daniels was a pastor at Holy Redeemer Church of God in Christ. He recently passed away. This conversation with WUWM's Taryn Powell was recorded in 2021. In about 15 minutes, we'll hear a new episode of our music series Live at Lake Effect, featuring some pop, soul, and rock and roll from Milwaukee's own Abby Jean. This for me is about creating, but mostly connecting with other people. And I really believe that someone has to talk, you know, because we're trained not to speak. And I say, Sing out loud. <laughs> Scream it out loud. But first, we'll learn about the research being done on Wisconsin's bats that hopes to find ways to preserve and grow the population. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Bats are one of the smallest and most threatened mammals in the United States. The species has been hit hard by a fungus called white nose syndrome. It first appeared in New York in 2006, and Wisconsin saw the impact about eight years later with a steep decline in the bat population. Bats play an important role in our ecosystem. They're pollinators and seed dispersers, and they eat a lot of pesky insects, just some of the reasons researchers are hoping to build the population back up. 
The bats are in hibernation now, but back in the summer, WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz visited a site where researchers are carefully trapping and tagging bats for research. So what is this setup here? This is a harp trap. So much like a musical instrument, it's the harp where you've got two strands of fishing line offset by an inch or two apart. It's a way to funnel bats through a particular area and then they, they fly through sideways. They don't necessarily see the other one just on the opposite side. They turn flat and hit that other one and just glide right down into our, our wow. containment bag where we can then grab them pretty effortlessly and uh -huh. then put them into a, a containment bag and we bring them back for processing. Elegant. Uh, yeah, no, it's quite nice to catch a lot of bats in a short amount of time. So in the cupola entrance here now, you can see them like a tornado swirling around. Oh. Typically what they would do for the first three, three and a half hours of the night, they're feeding quite heavily and it'll depend on whether it's a female or male because females often have pups that they have to feed and come back and nurse. If it's a male, they're less restricted, right? They don't really have any responsibilities so they can go out. If it's too cold, they might just come back in and go into torpor. So um, they're pretty lazy in that regard. But yeah, often that three, three and a half hours right after sunset is the, is the most um, activity that you'll see in night in in the night and then it'll kind of dip down midnight one two in the morning uh, they're usually digesting their food they're finding a warm place to roost so they don't have to expend energy so that might be under a bridge where it might be a heat trap it might be under somebody's uh, entryway as uh, going in and out of a building and in many cases that's what we I get a lot of calls with people that have night roosts is what we call them so they use them at night but they're not there during the day and so when somebody opens a door, they see bat guano, they see their calling card, but they don't actually see the, the bat itself. And so they've just used that as a warm place to rest, digest their food, leave the guano, and then go out and feed somewhere else. And then just before sunrise, they're also feeding at that point as well. So it's kind of this bell effect where it's high activity, low, and then a little bit you know, higher. But the most activity that we see throughout the night is that three, three and a half hours. This time of year, pretty active, mostly active throughout later in the evening because they're swarming, they're aggregating around these areas and this is the time of year that they mate. So incredibly uh, important time. Males are mating, um, they're mating with a lot of females. Uh, the female is storing that sperm in the uterine tract and uh, the, they're not impregnated until after they wake up in hibernation in the springtime called delayed fertilization. So you can see it's starting to get yeah. pretty great. Thanks to our partnerships with incredible partners are able to do a lot of great work. Um, it's also unusual to have three people working on bats in a state where Wisconsin is lucky in that we have that. Um, and then this is a special site just personally and for our team because um, my late husband, Dave Riddell, did his master's thesis uh, here and he was Wisconsin's first bat ecologist and sort of got our program going. Um, he died of brain cancer in 2012, but he had done his master's work here looking at not only how many bats were here and developing a, a system of infrared beams of light to shoot across the entrances that could count yeah. essentially bats going in and out. And then he also looked at what cues their emergence in spring. It's the reversal of airflow in the site, so the chimney effect of the warm underground air switching over as nights and days warm up and and that sends the bats out on the landscape. And then he also looked at which direction they're going, and they are indeed following the escarpment, so mostly yeah. heading north and south. The electricity is here because there's things like anemometers in there. There's Dave's beam brake system that still is functioning to monitor bats going in and out. 
and now of course we're using the electricity for the um, pit tag antenna that you can see mounted there across the back gate again. Pit tags, passive integrated transponders, the same little microchips and people's pets mm -hmm. are being read as the bats flying in or out so we get a date and time stamp. Wow. And then we know like we've got a bat coming from you know whichever town roost coming to the site we know how far away it's coming from. We've only had a few years of readers um, and in an intensive pit tag effort um, but it's special and and, uh, and somewhat unique to Wisconsin to have such a big network at our most important sites and we're starting to actually make specific connections between, you know, this bat is roosting at this address in somebody's address, uh, in, in somebody's neighborhood, in a bat house in summer, wow. and then it's coming to this specific mine uh, in winter. If you think of it, I'll just make a comparison, mm -hmm. like to birds, right? Yeah. We've been yeah. banding birds, people paid right. attention to that stuff forever, right. Right. <laughs> and connecting the two important yeah, yeah, yeah. places uh, geographically for birds uh, in, you know, both ends of migration. So we're just just at the like very tip of the iceberg with bats uh, on our understanding of that and how landscapes are, are important and what we need to do to manage landscapes appropriately for for bats and what they need. And then what is this little system here? That is an acoustic detector. So the little green box okay. is recording acoustic calls. And then, of course, we can identify species. Just like you could go and listen sure. in the forest to birds, sure. right, and do a bird survey. We can ID bats by their calls. And then there's also a um, camera trap on their trail cam. Now that we have so few bats, we're curious about predator declines and predation specifically at mine entrances. Mine entrances are great because the bats have to get funneled through a relatively mm -hmm. small space. So mm -hmm. rather than they're flying around out here and you're trying to like, how do we catch them? You know, right. you can really easily get them and study them when they're funneling through into right. the mine and then when they're sitting still in the mine, they're much easier to work with. Raccoons and cats have also figured this out. Uh. <laughs> and uh, so we've got pictures from the camera traps of raccoons and cats sitting waiting by the entrances and grab, we've got them literally grabbing the bat out of the air and, and watching the bats and stuff. So um, I think we're going to be doing a predator study. So what will you be doing this evening? I might be at a trap or Paul might be at a trap. Mm -hmm. um, we'll be grabbing bats and putting them in bags, bringing them up to the processing tent where they are going to get looked at for species. It's pretty much all going to be little brown bats. Sex age, were they born this year or not? That's the only thing we can say, juvenile or adult. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very difficult to determine age otherwise, unless they're banded or pit tagged, of course. Mm -hmm. And so now we are starting to get some of that age information, Cool. Uh, which is, yeah, fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, then they are going to get swabbed to see how much of the white nose fungus they're actually carrying and picking up as they're swarming. And then they will be getting a wing band a little pit tag injected just under their skin, kind of between their shoulder blades. And we dab a little bit of surgical glue. They still have several weeks before they go into hibernation. And in hibernation, they're immunosuppressed. So we don't want to do too much uh, pit tagging or, or create a wound that would need to heal, you know, right up into hibernation. Get that done early in the season so they have time to heal right. before they hibernate. Uh, but yeah, then they'll just get scanned to double check that pit tag number and then released. When Dave did his census work, figuring out how many bats were in here, it was 143,000 plus or minus 3,000. <laughs> so 
we had one of the largest hibernation sites for little brown bats in certainly the eastern half of the United States. There are a couple of sites that are similar in size and, and one in New York that's even larger. But like many of the other sites, we experienced huge declines, so we are significantly less than that now. But it's not nothing. It's enough bats where we count ourselves. We're, we're very happy that mm -hmm. we still have a lot of bats to work with mm -hmm. here in Wisconsin, and that is not something that other states are saying. We are also lucky to have a good bat community in Wisconsin, yeah. and it's yeah. not just DNR. We have hundreds of citizen science volunteers that are out there running acoustic surveys by boat or walking or in their car. Um, they're standing outside their bat house and counting bats and swatting at mosquitoes cool. um, as they do so to get mm -hmm. numbers for us. Mm -hmm. So they're the, you know, the eyes and ears gathering a lot of data for us. And certainly the silver lining, one of them, of White Nose is that, you know, and in Wisconsin we certainly intentionally have tried to get the message out there about the importance of bats uh, and the threats that they're facing, but certainly White Nose got everybody. Mm -hmm. thinking about bats and put Got bats, their attention. Yeah. more so than they would have been otherwise. And unfortunately, it takes something like this sometimes to do that for go. our night-flying, secretive, misunderstood little animals. Jennifer Rendell is a conservation biologist as well as a cave and mine specialist with the Wisconsin DNR. You also heard from J. Paul White, a mammal ecologist and team lead for the DNR bat program. They both spoke with WUWM Susan Bentz this summer. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or a conversation you'd like to hear on the show, give our community connection line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. We'll take one more break and then return with some music and a chat with Abby Jean for the latest episode of our music series, Live at Lake Effect. Keep listening on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Live at Lake Effect is our music series featuring local and nationally touring artists performing in the Lake Effect Surf Shop in Shorewood. We brought the Lake Effects together, along with Visionary Studios, to showcase musicians once a month, starting with an interview with the band airing exclusively here on Lake Effect. Today, we have Milwaukee's own Abby Jean, delivering some soul and rock and roll, of course. Joining her at the Lake Effect Surf Shop are Sam Gerke on bass, Enzo DeMay on drums, Guy Fumarelli on guitar, and Rodney Bush on keys. Here's Abby Jean and her band performing her new song, Sentimental Kids. Hey, my name's Abby Jean, and uh, this next song's a new song. I haven't put it out yet, but it's about uh, leaving your hometown. So it goes out to all the people who have to leave their hometowns. <laughs> Mama, all this baggage so heavy. But let's see. 
This is Audrey Nowakowski from Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. We're here at the Lake Effect Surf Shop in Shorewood, along with Trapper Shep, my co-producer for Live at Lake Effect. Hey, Trapper. Audrey. How do you Abby. feel? Hey. Ooh. Wow, that was a thrill. <laughs> Pop, soul, and totally. rock and roll. Yeah. And it's everything to me from girl groups like they're on nets to like the Velvet Underground, totally. everywhere in between. It's such an inspired, terrific sound. And we want to know some of the musicians that you have with you because some of them are from New York, some of them are from Milwaukee, some of them are from Mars. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. yeah, introduce so yourself and well, then your bandmates, to, please. Yeah, so I'm Abby Jean, yeah. And uh, I have some special people with me. Uh, my bass player is Sam Gerke, who also lives in New York. <sighs> Lives in, <laughs> lives in New York City now with me too, um, but is from Milwaukee. We've known each other since we were like five or six mm -hmm. years old. Funny. We've played in bands together throughout the years, so it's great to have him here. Also, Enzo DeMay is from Milwaukee as well. Enzo. Enzo yeah. <laughs> He's a fresh New Yorker too. Yeah. <laughs> and then we do have some real New Yorkers here. <laughs> we got Guy on guitar, and we also have my friend Rodney on keys. 
Thanks for coming to all of you. Yes. Thanks for having us. So first off, I have to say that there's awesome representation of what a product of MPS and arts education can look like oh, right yeah. here with the three of us. Totally. Yes. So I just wanted to yeah. acknowledge that. Shout out MHSA and yes. all of our great teachers. Roosevelt, Roosevelt. Creative Arts School, and MHSA. Absolutely, yeah. So I just wanted to, to give some local love there. But um, <laughs> you've been drawn to being creative, creating in some shape or form since you were a child, yeah. delving into art, rock and roll, rock and roll cafe more specifically. And you describe yourself as a product of a haunted jukebox and the Golden Heart Degenerate. So can you share a bit more about what it means when it came to your formative years here in Milwaukee? For sure, yeah. Well, I, I went to art school here, public art school. So... We are lucky enough to get a public art education uh, here in Milwaukee. And obviously, I've been around music my whole life and the arts in general performance. Um, but it wasn't until I was like 13 uh, when I found a place called Hi-Fi Cafe, which was a, it's the rock and roll cafe here in Milwaukee, um, and discovered the jukebox. I mean, I'd seen jukebox. I was always really into like the 50s. I thought the 50s were really cool. But then I discovered like garage music. And uh, I'd already loved 60s pop music, girl groups, the whole shebang, soul, everything. And then I got really heavy into records, which became kind of like an obsession very quickly. So that really shaped, you know, my musical likings and also what I ended up doing, which is recording music and putting out records, which is my favorite thing. And you're working on a record now in yeah. New York. And yes. the last time I saw you was in a basement in... <laughs> Brooklyn, somewhere I was playing a show, you yes. and Enzo came out, but you really have a New York spirit and swagger oh, to thanks. your music <laughs> and your sound now. That's Can cool. Can you talk about that transition for you, not just physical, but mentally and artistically and how, how living in New York has inspired your sound? Yeah, it's amazing because I didn't even think I was going to end up in New York City. I thought I was going to be in L.A. because I had taken the band out to L.A. before the pandemic and uh, ended up going there. I was going to go there, write a record in three months, and then move back to L.A. with my band. But everything, you know, the world shut down. <laughs> and I ended up staying there. Um, but it's great because I got the opportunity to meet real New Yorkers when everything was shut down. And I was right in the middle of all of my favorite things, like punk rock music. I grew up listening to punk rock music, too. Uh, rock and roll. And I realized it was just calling me to stay. I'm like, mm -hmm. I can't leave now. You know, this is like everything I love is right here in front of me. And the history in New York City is so rich of music, you know. And now I really feel like it's my home. So yeah. It, it feels like the first place I actually feel like at home. And it's I've been all around the world, you know, left home, left here when I was 16. And I've done a lot throughout the years going different places, look, searching for home. So mm -hmm. it's nice to be in the thick of all the things I love. It, it was scary at first, especially when everything shut down. I was like, oh, my gosh, you know. But then, like I said, I got to meet real New Yorkers because everybody else left. So if you're not, if you didn't leave, you're not, a, you're not a tourist and you're not a floater. You're a New Yorker. So it was nice because I got to meet rockers who have been there, you know, their whole lives. And also just every time I walk outside, there's something that I love that I was exposed to here. And especially rock and roll, oldies. I mean, this is an oldies town. Milwaukee is an oldies town. We got the bronze fawns, rock and roll. It's always on the radio and obviously the jukebox. So nice because I go outside every day in New York City and it's like a magic uh, thread that is like guiding me in my life. And it's crazy because there's, there's a club around the street from our house called TVI. 
They have a very similar jukebox to the one I grew up on. Like I was just, I walked in and I was like, this is crazy, <laughs> it's getting magical. And every day is a magical like adventure, you know? It's yeah. awesome. Well, and you shared a song with us, Sentimental Kids, that kind of talks about that whole journey, leaving home, finding a new one. Definitely. How does it feel to play that song together with your group of, you know, Honestly, it's amazing. awesome misfits, as you call them? You yeah, know? well, it's funny because there's so much good stuff here, but I also grew up here with a lot of trauma, as a lot of people do in, in their hometowns, you know? And I, it's like a bittersweet because I love this place, but I had to leave home. I had to. Mm -hmm. um, so it's nice now because I get to visit, but also nice because these guys are with me, you know? Yeah. They're also out, you know? Yeah, and talking about that, like, you see music for you especially is, is a way to heal and translate traumas that we go through. And even though, like, say, us here at the shop or audiences you perform at yeah. won't know the exact traumas that influence, like, your songs and your right. writing and, and what they're hearing, like, what's your favorite part of connecting with people through your music after you've worked on and processed what's gone into your songs? For sure. I mean, this for me is about creating, but mostly connecting with other people. And I really believe that someone has to talk, you know, because we're trained not to speak about whether it's being a woman or whether it's about our trauma or whatever it is. So the world says, don't talk. And I say, sing out loud, <laughs> scream it out loud. And people, I think, really relate to that and also feel like, wow, someone is finally doing this for me. And that is what this is all about for me, really, truly. Speaking of jukebox records, such that influences you, I would love to talk about your love of and love for making seven-inch 45 RPM records. Yeah. Can you share more about that? Because I of feel course. like your limited releases and, and kind of your strategy with putting out music, it's not something you see a lot of people doing. Yeah, well, I think it's really cool because, um, I mean, obviously 45s are what go on the jukebox. And I love full-length records, too. Don't get me wrong. I love full-length. But I always like the idea of, of putting out singles and, you know, back in the day that you'd put out a single and see how it does, you know? And it's different now, but it's actually kind of like being revived right now, uh, especially in New York City. So I'm really excited because something old feels new again. And I just love that. I mean, it's really special. It's tangible. I also do artwork. So all of the artwork on all of my seven inches, it's like I have a hand in that. And it's, it's really fun for me to do that. And it's, it's really special too, because every record can be different. And it's like a piece of artwork that someone gets to hold and keep forever. Plus, it's like magic. Like, yeah, it's, it's like, a piece of plastic that has secrets inside. That is a whole world that is music. You know, that's in, that's insane. If I was an alien and I saw someone put a needle on a piece of plastic and then a whole world opened up to me, I would be amazed. So that's how I see it. Speaking of worlds opening up, <laughs> your artwork, your music has always had this psychedelic side to it. Where Definitely. does where does that come from? You think? <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> I wonder where that came from. <laughs> you know, we're all adults It has adults to do here. with uh, exploring uh, as a young person. And actually, I'm like very pro-psychedelic in this new age that we live in, um, especially with trauma. And mm -hmm. there's been a lot of research done on mushrooms in particular that help people unlock things. I, I used to smoke cigarettes every day. I, that, it helped me get off of cigarettes. It's helped me really uh, unwind myself. Um, and on top of that, it's just a, a groovy experience. So it's a huge influence in my, my life, mm -hmm. especially psychedelic music throughout the years, uh, the 60s, the 70s. Mm -hmm. A lot has come from it. Everything I like really has come from it. Last question, easy question. Yeah. What's up with Elvis on your, <laughs> on your mic stand? Oh man, he's just watching me. He's looking over me. That's good. Heck yeah. I'm taking him around with me on tour. 
Thank you, Abby. This <laughs> is you so awesome. Much. I love being love here. This. Thanks for having me, guys. That was Milwaukee's own Abby Jean joining us for Live at Lake Effect. Be sure to head to wuwm.com and our YouTube and social media channels to see her and her band performing in the Lake Effect Surf Shop. That video is done by Visionary Studios. Milwaukee musician Trapper Shep and myself are the executive producers of Live at Lake Effect. Sound engineering is done by WUWM's Jason Reavy. New episodes of Live at Lake Effect are released monthly, so be sure to check out our past episodes featuring Dead Horses, Reina, Chicken Wire Empire, and more if you haven't already. And Live at Lake Effect wraps up the show for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or would like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, even though Halloween is over, zombie season seems to be year-round in pop culture. We'll learn how zombies not only highlight our fears, but can also be political. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Get you through the darkest night.